This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Since he was first under FBI surveillance at the age of 14 in the mid-1960s, our guest today, Norman Solomon, has been on a collision course with what he calls the warfare state. In his latest book, Made Love, Got War, Solomon recounts his controversial trips to Baghdad and Tehran with Sean Penn, as well as televised showdowns with Judith Miller and other pro-war journalists before the invasion of Iraq. Solomon is the author of 12 books and a nationally syndicated columnist on media and politics whose articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the Boston Globe. He is the recipient of the George Orwell Award, which honors distinguished contributions to honesty and clarity in public language. Norman Solomon, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much. How are you doing today? Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks. Oh, glad to have you with us. Now, you're up in San Francisco, yeah? That's right. What, what part? Oh, I'm just north of San Francisco here, near the coast. Oh, so you're, you're a Marin County boy? That's right. Wow. Well, that... as of the last few years, anyway, before I was an Oakland boy and a Santa Cruz Mountain boy <laughs> and a Washington, D.C. person and Oregon, so it's been a long trail. Wow. Now, now when was the first time you, uh, you noticed the warfare state? How, what was your introduction to it? Oh, I would say around 1965, uh, hearing about the sending of more troops to Vietnam, which I thought was probably a good idea. Yeah? You thought it was a good idea back then? Yeah. What, why is that? What was your mindset? Well, I accepted basically what I was told by the news media and the president, who was President Johnson at the time, and he seemed like a pretty good guy. Yeah? What, what changed your mind? Well, it was gradual. Uh, you know, uh, the actress Gina Lola Brigida is reputed to have said, I don't tell lies because it's so difficult to keep track of them. <laughs> and that's been a problem with uh, presidents who drag us into war and the acolytes and pundits who try to persuade us that that's a good idea. And gradually, as the mid-1960s became the late 1960s, it became more and more evident to me that there was a lot of deception involved, inconsistencies, and arrogance and callousness as well. Yeah. So was there a, a, a personal moment where the arrogance and callousness really uh, hit home for you? I don't think so. It was remarkably uh, just a gradual process. Huh. Really? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've got to say it's the same thing with me. I can't really, I can't pin a point in time where, where I felt like I became a... Uh, uh, a lefty, or whatever you want to call it, a pacifist of sorts, or a, uh-huh. or a, or a progressive. I, and I come from a, a very conservative family. It's 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 people think that there's some sort of catharsis invi- involved in this, and it's it's more of a long learning lesson, I think. Uh-huh. I, I I can be a little more specific. Yeah. I, I think watching <laughs> watching those uh, Buddhist monks um, em- yeah. self emulate. Was was when I really started to focus on the idea that maybe what we're doing, if monks are burning themselves, maybe this isn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. And then Tet was the one that put, that put me completely over the uh, the other on the other side of all this. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, yeah, a lot of support for the war then as, as now was the assumption that well, the U.S. can win it sooner or later. Right. Uh, right. Which you know, on one level, yes, it's disillusioning. On the other, is a deeper problem that 
the assumption being that as long as we can win, it's a good war. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, that's an excellent point, that it, as long as we're winning, we must be doing the right thing. Yeah. And uh, we've obviously, uh, history has, has shown that to, to be uh, a complete misreading of, of what is actually going on. Now, as you moved uh, th- through the Vietnam War, um, when did your uh, skepticism and your disagreement turn into more active? Role. Well, I, I suppose April fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, which is fairly um, specific date, uh, the first time that more than a hundred thousand people in one place in the United States demonstrated against the war in Vietnam. It was in New York City. I, I got on a, a train, a peace train from D.C. that was uh, commissioned and chartered uh, to go up to Manhattan. So that was uh, a very clear sort of a, a step. Although you know the decision to participate certainly was not sudden. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to move wildly forward here. Uh, it's got to be disappointing for you to uh, be watching the news reports every day with the Bush administration and what they're doing in the world. And it's got to feel a lot like Vietnam. But in between the period of time that we're talking about in 67 and now, did you ever feel that there was a point where uh, where we had the upper hand or where, where a, a point of view, a, a more peaceful point of view to the world had an upper hand? Well, within the United States, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose there were certain moments early in the Carter administration, um, and uh, but that was pretty fleeting until yeah. I woke up and realized that, you know, President Carter was part of the warfare state, just a, a less aggressive part. Yeah. Well, you know, what would what would be his uh, main flaw as far as that goes, or what what? turned you into that point of view on him how much time you have Uh, (laughs) well i mean i think his rhetoric aside and human rights talk aside he was supporting the government in el salvador which was aligned with death squads he was toasting dictators uh, the shah uh, marcos chavaran marcos in the philippines he was um stepping up which i didn't even know at the time stepping up military aid to indonesia when their killing of mass killing in east timor after the December 75 invasion, um, was running low on weapons. He launched um, politically and technologically uh, a whole new generation of nuclear weapons, and uh, he was very enthusiastic about them until he left office, in which case he gave the farewell address with the traditional pious speech, uh, in this case about how nuclear weapons were so bad for you. So it's always uh, compared to what, um, and he's probably been uh, well, in some ways our, our best or least bad president of the last five decades, but frankly that's a pretty low standard. Right. Let, let's talk a little bit, because you're talking about um, America's warfare state. How is that different, if is it different, than what we commonly refer to as the military-industrial complex? Well, I think it's similar. I think of the state as being very concentric, where you have a core of it and many different manifestations, the personal, the social, the political economy. So we can, from the outside, from the macro superstructure in, we can talk about $2 billion a day going to the U.S. military, um, the media enthusiasm for war, the um, Mm -hmm. ads, which I'm sure many listeners to this program, if they're um, in their late 
teens or early mid-twenties, they are among the targets of these TV commercials with the rock music and the achievements and the mom and dad looking on proudly at the young person as he or she joins the Marines or the Navy or whatever. The Army of One, those kind of ads. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's all targeted to to play off uh, the insecurities and hopes of young people. And then the personal acceptance, the passivity, the enthusiasm for war, at least acceptance of it. And so I do think of it as as kind of various spheres that are concentric with the core of the warfare state. Okay, well, so, okay, so the military-industrial complex is this, just sort of the machinery of it. You're talking really, it seems to me, you're talking more of the, the psychology that, it, that accompanies this massive sector of our economy and of our society. Yeah, I think they're very much threaded together. Right. Uh, and so there are all ways in which the psychology reinforces the uh, political economy and vice versa. Now, has our media really increased its barrage over, say, the last couple decades and, it, and its complicity with, with the warfare state? Well, I don't think there's ever been a good old days when uh-huh. you go back. And uh, my previous book, War Made Easy, has been made into a, a documentary film. And it shows, uh, back in the Vietnam War, the hallowed Walter Cronkite cheerleading the war in 1965. And so there's no really good old days to, to hark, hark back to. Uh, news media are more ubiquitous now. Uh, back then we had, to, you know, imagine, it's hard to imagine, Three TV networks, end of story. Mm-hmm. And um, now, of course, we have not only cable, but um, the Internet with its pluses and minuses and uh, other media outlets, other other forms of media. Now, you, you talked, and so I'll, call, I'll distinguish there's two areas here. By the way, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Norman Solomon. The book is Made Love Got War, Close Encounters with America's Warfare State. I'm going to make a distinction here, I'll, what I'll call the hard advertising and the soft advertising it seems that we've we have had sort of the uh, the selling of the, the Pentagon and the military forever in this country, and then the idea the soft it seems to me the soft advertising which you're talking about sort of the you know the the ex generals on cable news on a regular basis talking about the war and framing all of these uh, world issues in terms of military responses it seems to me that has become a much greater part of the picture and a, and a much more insidious and sort of uh, uh, un, it's insidious in the sense that it's not it's not identified as such is that something that yeah I mean I think that part of what we're dealing with is um, if you will militarism writ large and very writ small as well right. and the different ways in which you call it soft promotion or whatever, but it's kind of like the wallpaper. It's the theme elevator music, and it's around people, and it's kind of portrayed or conveyed as that's the way life is, that's get used to it, that's the way things need to be. And for better and worse, uh, I think Americans tend to be very practical and accommodate. Um, we, we tend to accommodate ourselves pretty much. What what's the tipping point for for the American people? Do you see any? Do you see a a point at which we will no longer um, support this kind of a situation? The one of the problems that I see is that the this military industrial complex has built in its own political constituency. It employs so many people now. There are so many people involved with it that it has a political base that is very difficult to overcome. But do you see a 
a, a sort of a popular tipping point uh, against this situation? Um, I don't think the tipping point imagery would apply because we're talking about a very powerful set of institutions and dynamics, and uh, we're really going from World War II to the present day, certainly the end of World War II, where the the next generation, the so-called baby boom generation, was called uh, post-war, but we were also pre-war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let us count the ways, uh, you know, Vietnam, Dominican Republic, on and on. Right. Um, and so it's hard to see. I mean, I'm not optimistic and I'm not fatalistic. I think that we need to challenge this warfare state in many different of its manifestations. And depending on our own uh, talents and preferences and, if you will, personalities, but the sum total is that just in terms of uh, human decency, we ought to find ways to resist this uh, this warfare state. Do you think that given the massive, I mean, incredible sums of money that are going out the, the Treasury every day, the, the latest statistic that I heard, was it $720 million a day are now being spent in the war in Iraq? Do you think those have that kind of psychological effect on people? They understand when, when our, our bridges are collapsing, we can't educate our, our children, we, can't, we don't have enough money to keep them healthy. And, and do you, do, do, at some point, do, doesn't the equation become what are we doing? A lot of people are making those connections. At the same time, we have a, depending on how you look at a dysfunctional or highly, for some people, functional um, electoral, uh, what we call democratic system. And so the opinions that people have, per se, may not have much effect on what policy actually happens. Speaking with Norman Solomon, the book is Made Love, Got War. I was wondering, I was going to switch gears here about your uh, trip to Iraq with Sean Penn. How did you first run into him, and and how did that go? Well, um, a background on it is that as the executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, which is a nonprofit organization, um, I had organized a trip to Baghdad in September of 2002, and we brought for the first time, uh, made possible a visit by a member of Congress. In other words, um, up until that time, the administration of George W. Bush, no member of Congress had gone to Iraq, and we sponsored a visit by Nick Rahal from West Virginia. He'd been in Congress at that point for 25 years. So coming back from that, which had, some, I think, some good meetings and uh, came right before the Iraqi government's decision to let weapons inspectors back into the country after uh, they had withdrawn four years earlier, there was, um, I had a hope that other members of Congress would go, uh, but uh, other than a couple who went just after, which I had no involvement with, um, members of Congress who we were talking to basically froze up. They didn't want to go. It was too politically risky. And so our institute invited other prominent Americans, and uh, Sean Penn accepted the invitation. So we went in December 2002. That was, I had just met him days earlier after he accepted the invitation. And I think people may remember some of the publicity. There was a lot of it. The right-wing media, Fox News and so forth, vilified him. Uh, I think he conducted himself really well. And um, five years later, we can pretty much uh, gauge 
who had it right and who had it wrong about the wisdom of invading Iraq. So you were there, you said December of 2002, that was just four months before the actual invasion. And you met with who when you were in Iraq? Well, um, we went in the middle of December, so it was actually three months before, as it turned out, the invasion. We met with the uh, head of the UNICEF program in Baghdad, and some UNICEF workers took us to schools in what was at the time Saddam Saddam City, now Sadr City, the Shiite um, slum or ghetto, if you want to call it that. Uh, But also we met with Iraqi officials, including Tariq Aziz, the deputy prime minister, you know, the assistant to Mr. Big. Um, and it was uh, fascinating, all these discussions. Um, Sean Penn never made any bones about the fact that um, Saddam Hussein was a vicious, brutal dictator. He said so before he went. He said so publicly before he went. And uh, I remember doing an interview with the BBC from my phone in the hotel in Baghdad and saying that it was a police state and condemning the regime. That was never at issue. The issue was whether the U.S. government should drop bombs on Baghdad and other areas of Iraq, and uh, we've seen the results. We're speaking with Norman Solomon. The book is Made Love, Got War. Did you uh, strike up a, a friendship with Sean Penn at all in this uh the time there? you still see him? Yeah, yeah, hmm? we, we are friends, yeah. It was what? all, uh, having met in the context of the trip, yeah. uh, it did uh, establish a friendship. How, do, what is, how does he see his celebrity and how it interplays with his political beliefs and how he brings that out front and gets attacked for them? I, it, does he ever uh, doubt the wisdom of what he's doing? Well, <clears throat> well I, um, I'm very careful never to seem to try to speak for him. Oh, yeah. I'm not so, asking you so, um, any experiences you, know, my, you might have. My own have. perception, um, and based on his interviews, um, I've never publicly or privately uh, heard him express any regret uh, about going to Baghdad. And uh, I think, really, he conducted himself in a way where he had no reason for regret because everything he said you know, was very solid. I, I do quote from statements he made during the trip to Baghdad in my book, and uh, as you know, that's part of what I recount and tried yeah. to um, convey some of the context of the trip and, and what, what it was like from my vantage point. From your trip to Iraq, did you have a, a sense of how fragile the infrastructure was in the country um, and how easily that this thing could be tipped over? Well, there was no civil society at all. I mean, I, I'd been to uh, the Soviet Union in 85, 86, 87, uh, a very repressive state, but nothing like under Saddam Hussein. I mean, there were, there were some civic groups, modicum of dissent. Uh, Glasnost was opening up uh, under Gorbachev. And subsequently, uh, two years ago, I went to Iran, which has a civil society and has some dissent, and is not a police state, although it's very uh, repressive in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, so i would never been before or since to any country with the uh, just the total lockdown repression of Saddam Hussein. There's no question about that. Um, I uh, thought that, and I wrote a, a brief book with, with a foreign correspondent, Rees Ehrlich, that came out just before the invasion. Um, I thought that the claims from the um, Ba'ath Party people, the high officials, that 
the U.S. Uh, would not be able to defeat Iraq and so forth. I thought that was bluster, uh, and I was I was both right and wrong. Yeah, uh, as we've seen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a, that, the way you put that is um, the. Uh, did you have any sense of the this sort of um, the tension between the the different the Sunnis the Shia? Did, was that something that came across at all? Uh, no, it was uh, it was very much under the surface. Okay. I mean, Saddam suppressed that. Yeah. And I, I had two things to say is one, there was you know enormous uh, uh, tension and even hatred between the ruling Ba'ath Party, uh, the government on the one hand, and Shiites on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, the what is now being called sectarian hatred I don't think existed anywhere near the way it did now. In other words, I um, met people who were Shiites who worked for the government, were in political positions in the government. Uh, And I think something that's happened is that largely as a result of the invasion and occupation and of conscious, to the extent you can use that term, conscious um, U.S. foreign policy in Iraq, the hostility and the the killing and the hatred between Shiites and Sunnis has really been largely um, engineered uh, and catalyzed by the U.S. government. And uh, so now you have a whole different order of magnitude of hatreds. And I, is that is that because the, the Ba'ath Party was predominantly Sunni? We wanted to discredit them. We, we, we funded, we essentially helped facilitate a Shiite government coming in which has made uh it's made it their business to exclude the sunnis from from governance is that exacerbated or is that the reason for for what's what part of the reason for this sort of growing tension well i certainly don't want to claim to be an expert okay. on iraqi society but yeah. i would i would say this the uh, uh way in which the united states has proceeded has been um a three-dimensional chess game to manipulate. And if you can make sense out of it, if anybody can, yeah, yeah. They're, f- they're far wiser than I. Yeah. It's just been crazy. And, you know, here's the U.S. government pouring all this money and material and bombs and troops to support uh, a uh, government, the Maliki government, which is not only Sunni-dominated, but is aligned with death squads killing Sunnis, and is also a government closely aligned with Iran, which we're told is the biggest threat to the peace of the world. So just that's just for starters how crazy this is. Yeah, oh, and it goes from there. And uh, Norman Solomon, just to sort of uh, you know put the uh, period on all of this, for uh, are we heading into, in your opinion, have we learned nothing from our experience in Iraq? Are we going into Iran in a, in a military incursion? Well, I'm sure that many listeners have learned something, but in terms of the power right. elite, I don't right. think they've learned very much at all. Uh, and it's kind of a double or nothing. You've lost your bet, so you up the, the ante. Right. I think that's the mentality of the Cheney people. And uh, with some exceptions, journalists are really not behaving appreciably differently uh, now than they were five years ago. It's just it's, it's Iraq and then, it's Iran now. I'm, well, I'm going to jump in just quickly on, on that point. Oh, what was it like to talk to Judith Miller? I, what, what, what was the when you debated her? Did, did you get any insight into her character, or what would make her essentially lie for our government? Well, back then she was renowned, but not nearly as famous and infamous. This was 1999, and yeah. I went back and, as you know, used or quoted from 
the CNN transcript because it was a live encounter I had with her. Well, she was cheerleading that war, and I saw her as a war cheerleader um, in 1999 as later. That happened to be the bombing of Yugoslavia and an apologist for the press, an apologist for the Pentagon's waging of war. And, uh, you know, frankly, those folks are a dime a dozen. Um, they function in a prostitute capacity. It's not independent journalism. Um, some people may not like to hear that, but that that is my view. Yeah, very good. Are these the, they're the ones who are more likely to take the handouts, the press releases from the Pentagon and State Department, and uh, yeah, or to to interview the sources that they're steered to. And right. of course, uh, yeah. Judith Miller did that. Would um, Would you entertain the idea of if we it looked like the dogs of war were really going? Full bore. We're heading into Iran. It, we just were reading a report about the uh, the British uh, special forces uh, pr- uh, involved with operations inside Iran right now, and I assume a lot of recon work is being is going on. If it looks like we're going into Iran, would you would you head in, uh, head up a delegation of, of Americans to go to Tehran and and try to do what you were doing um, in Iraq? I think it would be a very good thing to do. Okay. Well, very good. Well, um, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us here on Weekly Signals. The book is May Love Got War, Close Encounters with America's Warfare State by Norman Solomon, and a uh, foreword by Daniel Ellsberg. Norman, thank you so much for, for being here on Weekly Signals. Oh, thank you both. I'm All glad right. we had a chance to talk on the air. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.